Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So Kristen, I was on a roundtable yesterday on the Hill in front of members. It was all official. I had a name placard and everything. And we were talking about paid uh, family medical leave, which was, you know, top, it's the topic I find very interesting. And we've done a lot of work on, and it's all near and dear to my heart. But what I wanted to tell you, well, two things. One, somebody came up to me before it started and said, I'm a huge fan of the pollsters. And I was in the same sorority, not the same chapter as Kristen. So I get the carnation mail. Does that sound? Familiar? Oh, carnation chronicle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so that was exciting. So shout out to pollster fans. We're out in the wild, <laughs> out where we see them, the real America, aka Rayburn. Um, and then uh, the other thing was uh, the, one of the first questions I got from one of the members was a question that you would have loved. It was, how will paid and family medical leave change millennials' views toward capitalism since polls show that millennials are feeling a little bit soft on capitalism? And I was like, this is a question for Kristen. <laughs> this is like a pollster's <laughs> question. This Wait, is what such was a your good... answer? Well, I, well, like, well, first of all, there was this moment where I was like, I was not expecting this question. <laughs> like, I was totally not expecting this question. Um, and I said, well, the, you know, first answer is, I don't, you know, it's hard to say at this stage, uh, you know, at the same time, I think millennials, and I took this completely from you, millennials are really not as into labels, you know, so I like completely stole that 100% from you. I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, people do want, and this is from Navigator, capitalism with regulations, capitalism with rules and guardrails. And so this is, a you know, family medical leave is a way, you know, is an example of that. And millennials don't all come from the same type of stage in their life. Some people are taking care of parents. Some people are parents themselves. And so that's going to affect how they view this to more than just their age group. So that was my basic answer. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Thanks. But I did like have a little, I had like, I started off with like a little bit of like, I don't want to say snark, but then afterwards I'm like, did I just like snark <laughs> like a congressional roundtable like, to a member of Congress? Like, I hope this is not. Good thing C-SPAN is covering other things on the Hill, you know, <laughs> than this. <laughs> but anyway, I was like, this is a full Kristen pollsters moment that I'm getting asked a question about millennials and capitalism. I don't know if the pollsters fan in the audience picked up on it. But anyway, I thought I would share that with you. Well, let's dive into this week's big top lines. We're going to talk about the primary, specifically the rise of Mayor Pete. Is this real? Is it just a couple of polls? How seriously should we take it? Um, as well as the latest on impeachment, as we are recording this show, the testimony of EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland is happening. So it's possible that by the time this show comes out, something new will have happened that will dramatically change the course of uh, discussing impeachment, but we'll dive into where people stand at the moment. Then we will talk about the new study Echelon put out about what would happen if the U.S. was no longer a two-party system. If we had a system a little closer to what they have in the U.K., how would voters break down? And we'll check in on the upcoming British elections. How are things looking for Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, and more? 
Margie's got some new polling out about how Democrats are going to talk about Medicare for all. And then we'll wrap up with a discussion of people's Thanksgiving spending plans. We're going to be taking next week off. So we'll get in our turkey polls today. Great. So first, let's talk a little bit about the primary, uh, the big news in polling, at least, that came out in the last couple days was the latest Des Moines Register or CNN poll in Iowa, which showed Mayor Pete um, in the lead and looked at, you know, what's interesting about the way the Des Moines Register poll asks, they have a first choice, they have a second choice, and then they have actively considering. So then you're able to, you know, look at that as kind of I think they call it the footprint or the total footprint of um, a candidate, which is just an interesting way to kind of with, especially with such a large field to see where the fluidity of the race. Um, but no matter how you look at it, it shows good news for Mayor Pete and, and, you know, different news for different candidates. What did you think watching this on the other side? I know you have, you're on the Pete beat. <laughs> the I was on the Pete beat so early. So yeah. to, that that's like purely, as someone who is is not going to vote in the Democratic primary and is just watching as an interested outsider, um, watching Mayor Pete have like his second wave moment because he had a big moment when he first jumped into the race, raised a gajillion dollars. And then it was kind of quiet for a little while. Um, and it wasn't until that last debate when he more forcefully started taking the sort of more trying to carve out a path as like a Biden alternative almost that he he got this traction. Um so you've got in these Iowa polls, you've had a couple that have really shown great results for him. Uh, Des Moines Register CNN had him well in the lead at 25 percent, while uh, Sanders, Biden and Warren all have either 15 or 16 percent. CBS uh, News YouGov had Buttigieg right up there with Biden and Sanders. Um, at tw- he had 21, they had 22 each. Warren had 18. That's still all effectively uh, a tie or close enough where it's hard to read too much into it. Monmouth also has Mayor Pete at 22, while Warren at 18, Biden at 19. They have Sanders only down at 13 in that poll. So some pretty good news for him. And, and this this line, this trend line, I mean, from the end of September to now, he's gone from being in the single digits all the way up to being up there in the top of the pack. So that is that is a real finding. That is a notable thing. It's quite a bit different from what is happening nationally at the national primary level. And, you know, obviously that's not how Democrats pick the candidate and things may change depending on what happens in the early contests. But in the national numbers, Biden continues to be on average ahead of Warren um, and then followed up by Sanders. But the three of them really being a little bit, you know, fairly, you know, somewhat close to each other, kind of depending on which poll and at what time with Mayor Pete really quite a bit further back um, at 8 percent and kind of the national primary average. So one thing that I think we should note, and I think we're going to talk about the uh, St. Anselm poll. Uh, as well. So you also have in New Hampshire, Mayor Pete having this kind of surge in the polls where he, you know, the most recent St. Anselm poll has him well out in the lead at 25 points with Biden at 15, Warren at 15 and Sanders at nine. But what I noticed a lot of people flagging on Twitter, and this also got raised uh, about the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution polls from last week that showed Trump vulnerable in Georgia, is the education balance of your sample. 
Um, no sooner had that St. Anselm poll showing up at, with, oh, Pete's at 25%. He's crushing the rest of the field. Oh, my gosh. Um, that it showed something like over a third of the sample had postgraduate degrees. Um, that a huge portion of the sample um, had just people who were, you know, plain old college degrees. Um, that there doesn't appear to be any education waiting. So you really have to believe that the Democratic primary electorate in New Hampshire is crazy educated, <laughs> um, which I think is is that to me seems like a wild overestimation of the education level of any state's primary voter population, period. Um, this is no knock on New Hampshire. This is just this is not a universe that exists in reality. And same thing, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll, I believe it had something close to two thirds of voters in Atlanta or pardon me, two thirds of voters in Georgia having bachelor's degrees or more. That's just not a, a thing that exists in this reality. And so, as we know, overestimating the education level of your electorate is how the, some of those statewide polls in 2016 got things catastrophically wrong. The fact that we still have polls coming out that are not properly addressing if you have the right education level is a big deal. So I not to like completely poo-poo the rise of Mayor Pete, but if his appeal is very concentrated among the type of Democratic voter who really loves a good Rhodes Scholar and is, you know, super impressed by the fact that he taught himself Norwegian to learn how to read a book and those sorts of things and like shares his super educated sensibilities, um, you could be getting a very false read on what's going on in these polls. So just, you know, buyer beware. Make sure that if you are consuming these polls, that at a minimum you are trying to get to the bottom of does the education balance of this poll look right to me? Right. And, you know, it's a little bit different if you're talking about a primary versus a general electorate and one in terms of what is knowable and what's easy to find out and, and what is more volatile and depends on what's happening in the election at that time. So th there are some differences in evaluating a primary electorate versus a general electorate. But either way, it's, you know, these are things that are, are worth being aware of or at least seeing what others think of this. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's hard for folks just consuming polls on Twitter to say, oh, well, let me go look at the crosstabs in the methodology page to see how this was weighted and what the percent by college, you know, percent that are college educated. I think that's a lot for, you know, for the kind of average Twitter consumer of polls to to want to do. So, But it is just something that, you know, folks who amplify polling and talk about polling should be aware of. So let's talk a little bit then about this idea of is the Democratic electorate satisfied with their field? Um, as you know, we noted last week, there were rumblings that Michael Bloomberg might get in. You have had Deval Patrick announce that he's going to get into the race. But as we saw with the Fox News polling around this, CBS's battleground tracker with YouGov also really suggests that a huge portion of the Democratic electorate is pretty happy with their choices. 78% in that CBS News battleground poll says they're happy, or pardon me, satisfied. 22% say they'd want more choices. Um, but this is still a fluid field. Just because people are happy with their options doesn't mean that they have firmly settled on one. 32% of likely Democratic voters say their mind is definitely made up. 55% say it's probably made up. 13% um, say they will probably change their mind. Margie, do you you could read this glass half full, glass half empty. Does this look like a pretty settled field to you, or does this look like 
if you are a candidate who's currently polling below 5%, like you, you still got a chance. Yeah. I mean, look, being satisfied with the field is, I mean, I think, you know, looking at, at both these numbers is pretty interesting. I mean, you know, a third say their mind's definitely made up. I mean, that's a lot that could still move in some way. And it's interesting that, you know, 78% say they're satisfied with the field. That could mean they move around, you know, there's a group of that that says they could move around, you know, within the field. But even a fifth who say they want more choices, I mean, you could look at that in a variety of ways. You know, do you want more choices? Is that, you know, is that mean that, you know, the the field is still not settled? And I guess actually now that I look at it is satisfied the opposite of want more choices, you know, <laughs> you could be both, both of those things at some level, right? So, I mean, I see this as uh, opportunity for candidates who are still now beginning to, you know, go up on the air and communicate as, you know, voting gets closer. This is a poll of early contests, early states, not just the first one or two and not the whole country. So it's folks who are going to be engaged on this a little bit, a little bit sooner. So, you know, I think it means that, you know, while folks have been following the race and it's twists and turns for months now that for voters, they're going to be starting to tune in as we get a little bit closer. I, I think it's good news for, you know, for anybody who is still trying to communicate. And it also means that there's, no, you know, even folks who are in the top tier still need to continue to communicate with their voters too. The one question I had from the CBS poll that I found that I had a quibble with, and it's always interesting, these questions about electability and what do you want? Do you want someone who can beat Trump or someone who is something else, which I, I have, you know, there, I, there are ways you can challenge some of those questions and they have their use, even if people are not always necessarily able to report exactly how they're feeling, or maybe we're pushing people into thinking that they're mutually exclusive, that what you want may not be able to beat Trump. You know, we're making that assumption in some of those questions, but I understand the utility of them. But this question I feel I have a problem with, and it's thinking about swing or undecided voters in 2020, the kind of people who might choose either the Democrat or the Republican. From what you've heard about these voters, what kind of candidates do you think most swing or undecided voters would be most more likely to want? They will probably prefer someone younger or someone older, or it doesn't matter. And I just feel that is asking for just way too many hypotheticals and calculations. It's asking respondents to play pundit in a way that is not so useful. And, and you can see from the results that people kind of throw up their hands, you know, on it, you know, and, and I just find those questions really like more about like reflecting back press coverage and what the press wants to talk about than like the way voters are really thinking about things. Well, let's talk a little bit about the president's job approval. Um, not a ton has moved at the at present. We still have him at about 44% approve, 53.6% disapprove. Impeachment numbers also not moving a ton. Um, as I click over to my Twitter feed as we're recording, uh, it appears that there are uh, pretty big things happening with Sondland's testimony. Um, unclear to me, again, that this will move numbers, um, but you do have this pretty consistent breakdown that we saw, Margie, in your polling last week that we talked about from Navigator, where it basically broke voters down into half believe he ought to be impeached and removed, a quarter believe he did nothing wrong, the call was perfect. And then you've got this other quarter that's like skeptical in some way. They're unsure. They think the call was wrong, but not impeachable. Um, they think even if it is impeachable, we're too close to an election, those sorts of things. 
And you have ABC Ipsos kind of confirming that same breakdown and same finding. Um, They asked a question, do you believe uh, President Trump's actions were wrong and he should be impeached by the House and removed from office? Uh, 51% say yes. Then you have President Trump's actions were not wrong. You have a quarter. Then the rest all fall into either his actions were wrong, he should be impeached by the House but not removed. His actions were wrong, he should not be impeached. Or they skipped the question. They said unsure. So that's uh, that's now two different data points that all kind of give that same sort of breakdown. If you're looking for a, a quick and easy way to understand where voters are at, little just about 51%, slim majority, just over half say impeach him. Those who say don't are kind of split between he was wrong, he should be censured, I don't really know, or no, he did nothing wrong, the call was perfect. So I just want to flag. So, you know, we've been including in our scripts and looking at the 538 impeachment tracker, which, you know, they have divided and you can use a toggle to see whether you're just looking at questions that they label as begin only polls asking whether to begin the impeachment process. For example, would you like to see Congress begin the process to impeach Trump or not versus questions? And those have a little bit higher support than ones that say impeach or remove or repeat. I'm sorry, impeach and remove. Um, so th- those numbers show plurality support, but uh, by a smaller margin. And they also have, I just think it's worth noting, and I don't know if the change over in wording has affected the average, but the questions no longer say begin, you know, that word begin. Um, and, you know, if you go to kind of their full 538 has like, here's all the language that we use from all the different outlets and And the begin ones are now, do you support or oppose the impeachment inquiry? I don't know if that's different than begin. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I just want to note that as the inquiry changes, the question wording and the tense and how we talk about it changes a little bit. For sure, impeach and remove is different than an inquiry or process type question. But that begin piece may be why some of the numbers are changing, particularly with Republicans. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dig into some hypotheticals. What if the U.S. had five different political parties? And how are things going in a country that does have at least five political parties? Uh, So we'll be right back here on The Pollsters. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, so we're back. So, Eshlon, your firm did something interesting. Yes. (laughs) Tell us about these new parties you guys came up with. Yes. So this is this is the brainchild of Patrick Ruffini. (laughs) I have to give all credit where it is due. Um, But there's so much talk about, 
you know, anytime we're in election season, well, gosh, why do we why do we have a two party system? What about these independent voters? Why don't isn't there a party that would represent them? Or the fact that you have different wings within each party that get resolved through these primaries, et cetera. So what if you had five different parties? What if you had a multi-party democracy that looked a little bit like what you have in a variety of different European countries, where you have sort of the right, the center right, the more kind of libertarian-esque party the sort of labor working class party, and then the Green Party. This is a pretty traditional breakdown of things that you would find in a European election. So we sort of simulated it here. We didn't give the parties names or specific leaders in the survey itself. We just offered people definitions, uh, pardon me, descriptions of these different parties and asked them which one they thought they would associate with more. So you have what we call sort of the nationalist party, um, stop illegal immigration, put America first, stand up to political correctness, end unfair trade deals. In the UK context, you could think about this as the Brexit party. In the in Germany, it would be alternative for Deutschland. Um, you know, you've got these sort of further right parties that are pretty nationalist, um, anti-EU, et cetera. So here in the US, that's how we would describe it. Then we have conservative party. We sort of Think of this as more kind of Reagan, classical conservatism, free enterprise, traditional family values, strong military, essentially what the Republican platform looked like a la uh, Mitt Romney 2012. Um, that's that's sort of how we go back to define our con- traditional conservative party. Then we have what what we called the Acela party, which has uh, triggered a lot of people on Twitter <laughs> who get very angry that they are upset that their views have been labeled as the Acela party views. Um, Or, hey, I don't live in the Northeast Corridor, but I hold these views. How dare you? A lot of people upset about that. Um, But too bad, because it, I think, is a pretty effective encapsulation um, or it's an attention-grabbing label for anybody whose sort of core views are advancing social progress on, you know, LGBT rights and women's issues, working on free trade and diplomacy, cutting the deficit, and reforming capitalism with sensible regulation. This is essentially Mike Bloombergism um, and is why I, for a very long time, have always asserted that if you did have a third party in the U.S., most people who say, oh, gosh, I want a third party, that pretty closely approximate their views. And there are just not a ton of them in the United States these days. And we find only 12 percent of people would choose that party as primarily representing their views. The biggest party we find would be if we had a more trad- traditional labor party, putting the middle class first, passing universal health care, um, strengthening labor unions, raising taxes on the wealthy to support programs for those less well off. Um, we said that this sort of represents kind of what Obama vision for the party would be. This got us some backlash from folks who are further on the left who view Obama as being much too far too Acela for them. Uh, and they don't think that he accurately represents that. So that was our other um, people being mad on Twitter thing was they think that doesn't represent Obama. So even when you have five different parties, people are still like, this is not, you know, the two party system is not going to be able to perfectly ca- encapsulate everybody's views and preferences I think and the priorities. Frustration but- was that they view Obama as being too, uh, that he was too neoliberal or whatever to be, oh, he's not a labor working families party type guy. Um, so that was, that was some Twitter backlash about our chart. But then finally yeah. green party, which is where we sort of try to take the Bernie AOC perspective, pass a green new deal to build a carbon free economy with jobs for all, break up big corporations and systemic inequality and promote social and economic justice. And that gets 10% of America. The more interesting thing is then when you ask people, 
okay, so which political party do you affiliate with today? And then which party would you affiliate with in this mix? So Republicans are split pretty evenly between that nationalist party as well as the traditional conservative party. So welcome to our ongoing GOP divide, if you will. Independents, I think, crucially to note, do not split up where most of them pick that Acela party view. Um, This is why the whole idea of a sort of no-labels-y Bloombergian, oh, we're going to win independence this way party does not ever really attract the kind of traction you would think it would. Here we have independents, 39% of them choosing either the Labour or Green Party, and then you have 35% of them choosing either the Conservative or Nationalist Party, independents are very split in what they believe. They do not all coalesce around one particular view, and I think this lays that out pretty well. And then Democrats more often tend to choose that they are in that Labour Party versus being in that Green Party. Um, Only 17% of Democrats put themselves in that more Bernie AOC view, when they also have the option of choosing them something that's perhaps a bit more closer to the centers, maybe not the right word, but sort of framed in a different way. And then I, we looked at this generationally. And the Green Party view is actually f- the second most popular view among Generation Z at 21%. The, the Generation Z very much so chooses the, the left of center positions, not really gravitating toward the Acela position. Neither, by the way, are millennials. For millennials, you have 31% choosing that Labour Party view. Um, actually, the two conservative parties combine for 30%. The, the nationalist and the conservative, they combine for 30%. But that's still not even close to what you get when you combine the two left parties among Gen Z or millennials. The reason I think the Gen Z answer is so fascinating is Harvard IOP put their new poll out this week. And it shows um, young voters really gravitating toward Bernie Sanders over other Democratic Party alternatives. And so the strength there of the coalition around that kind of Bernie AOC view among younger voters um, is, I just think, pretty pretty interesting. And this is a, like another data point suggesting why that is the case. Um, you see almost no appeal for that viewpoint, though, among the silent generation. Um, they instead tend to gravitate toward more conservative views, as do the boomers. Uh, boomers combine for 43% choosing either the conservative or uh, nationalist view. So were you surprised by the division between, you know, almost equally approximately, let's say, between conservative and nationalist among the kind of right-leaning folks? I mean, if you would read the coverage you know, the sort of conventional wisdom is this is Trump's party now and Republicans have gotten bored with, you know, what really sounds much more nationalist. And that's a phrase that, you know, potentially really glosses over some of the real toxic, corrosive um, language that he uses in policies and things that were once considered true blue conservative, which I like your colors here in your chart, are now, you know, really behind the scenes or not behind the scenes, but on the back burner. But yet in your analysis, those two groups are like 50-50 among the conservative leaning, Republican leaning folks. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that part of the reason why Trump has been able to coalesce the party around him even though the party is still pretty split between those two visions, is it that he is putting points on the board for the conservatives, even if he himself is not in that basket. So the judges he's appointing, um, the, you know, cut the tax cuts, like he's doing enough things that really make that conservative bucket excited and glad that he's president. 
that that's why they've sort of come aboard. Um, if his agenda was purely about satisfying that nationalist wing, it probably wouldn't work. But through the judges he appoints, the tax cuts, the regulatory stuff he does, he does enough things that the conservative wing still stays with him. They're still there and a part of the party. And so whatever the GOP looks like post-Trump, that's why I still believe that after Trump, there will continue to be this fight over to what extent Trump's rhetorical positions and that more nationalist vibe, how much does that stay the dominant flavor of the party's rhetoric? I think there's a chance that it does roll back and that conservative wing asserts itself in the next iteration because they're not gone. They still hold a, a significant number of the voters. Those voters are just kind of fine with Trump for now because he's giving them enough wins on policy. Okay, interesting. And so then looking to a place that does have a variety of colors in their chart. <laughs> well, let me let me dig in just to one last yeah. chart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I wanted to look at what Democratic primary voters, sure. where would they put themselves and then split it up based on who their candidate was. And so we looked at Biden, Warren, and Sanders, which were candidates where he had basically enough people to make, make an interesting chart. And it really shows that actually, even though we talk about Warren and Sanders as being somewhat, in, you know, they have fairly similar agendas and maybe, you know, if you like one, but you could switch to the other, but actually their coalitions are pretty different. And that for Warren, actually very few of her voters come from that kind of green party AOC type bucket that actually the bulk of her voters are in some ways these like Acela, you know, these Acela party folks who, for whom being sort of culturally progressive and, and signaling that is very important, but who may actually be less truly fiscally progressive than may have been suggested, where Bernie's coalition is very squarely, you are very fiscally progressive, um, in addition to being culturally progressive. We hear the Sanders and Warren you know, coalitions being talked about as somewhat interchangeable. And I think this suggests that they are not, that for Warren, a lot of her supporters are not necessarily personally in the same place being fiscally progressive, that perhaps they view Elizabeth Warren as like talking the talk, but maybe not, she's not likely to go actually burn down Wall Street in the end. Um, and so I, I just think that heading into tonight's debate, I've got this chart on my mind for sure. Okay, cool. And so how does this relate to the UK? So in the UK, we also have five parties um, that are going to be contesting the elections coming up on December 12th. Um, you have a Green Party. You have a Brexit Party, which looks a lot more like our Nationalist Party. You have Lib Dems, which looks kind of more like our Acela Party, Labour and Conservative. Um, and here in those elections, you have Conservatives in the top spot. This is a dramatic improvement for them since the summer. Um, you had a, a pretty big change. You have had Boris Johnson sort of take over push for Brexit. Um, there's a sense that he's pushing for it a little more forcefully than uh, Theresa May. He's trying different strategies. Uh, and so his whole message is we're going to get Brexit done. And as a result, the Brexit party itself has sort of said, we're not going to fight conservative candidates in district in marginal seats where we where conservatives have a chance to win. We're going to pull our candidates back and not try to, to, to take them on because we believe that they are going to be the best hope of getting Brexit actually done. So you've seen the Brexit party sort of fall in support at the same time that the Conservative Party has risen in support as Boris Johnson 
sort of more vocally and forcefully defended, yes, we're going to pursue Brexit. Um, there's some polling here from Lord Ashcroft. I always love Lord Ashcroft's polling, um, where it he, he takes a look at the different party leaders and says, which of the following do you think would make a better prime minister, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn? And Boris Johnson wins by about a 20-point margin on that question. 45%. Right. There must be a lot that say, though, neither or don't know, right? Yes. Know so a lot say neither are. or don't know. Um, but they then say, if you had to choose, which would you prefer, a conservative government with Boris Johnson as prime minister or a labor government with Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister? And on that question, the difference narrows, but is still a 12 point advantage for Boris Johnson. So he's looking OK headed into these elections. But as we know, British polling has been particularly abominable <laughs> over the last couple of elections. So who knows? <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> I know. Right. And but I mean, it's interesting that how much that gap narrows if the question is a labor government with. And so does that tell you something about how people view the two folks at the top as opposed to the party or the government, what they think of the government is interesting. That difference is interesting. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. Actually, when we come back, we'll hear about your polling on Medicare for all. Okay, welcome back. So Margie, take it away. You guys have done some new polling on Medicare for All. Tell yes, us Yes, this it. is hot off the presses. So so the to level set a little bit, there's been a variety of well, obviously that you see a, a big debate among Democrats on the details of Medicare for All or healthcare more broadly, take away the name, for example, and just, you know, how people talk about how a program would be paid for, what it would include or what it wouldn't include, what's the role of insurance companies, those kinds of things you've seen a lot of policy conversation. And that's, you know, important policy conversations to have. How, how do those different policy conversations affect or are they relate to support among voters? And that was one of the questions we wanted to answer in this new work that we did for PCCC, Business for Medicare for All, and Public Citizen. We're all partners on this work. And we found that that support from Medicare for All was pretty robust, no matter how we talked about it. So we asked about it in a couple different ways. We had this initial vote where it's just, you know, how do you feel about Medicare for All without any explanation of what it is, whatever you think it is, you, know, you support it or you oppose it. Then we had an informed vote where we ex- give a little description of it, which, you know, is, is public, but it explains what it would do. It would guarantee coverage to anyone, to everyone from any doctor or hospital with no premiums, deductibles, or co-pays, and it would expand Medicare's benefit to cover more prenatal, dental, vision, home-based, and nursing home care. So it's an explanation of it. And support increases to 70-30. It goes from 66-34 to 70-30. So it increases a little bit, not dramatic, but it increases. Then we have two different split tests. So everybody hears um, uh, something about costs, what opponents say about costs. Medicare for all would cost $32 trillion. The only way to pay for it is through a massive healthcare tax. And then everybody got one different you know, response to that, whether it talks about taxes going up only for the wealthy and big corporations, or whether it says that insurance company profits were no longer drive up costs. So that's why everyone will pay less. Or does it say the response that, well, taxes might increase a little bit, but out-of-pocket costs would um, be lower for all but the wealthiest? So three different rebuttals. And no matter which rebuttal people heard, 
the favor post stays the same. It's still basically the same. There's, you know, not really big, you know, just sort of minor small differences, but it's all still in this basic two to one favor oppose. And then we did a similar exercise on the role of private insurance. Everyone heard an opposition argument. Medicare for all will kick 150 million Americans off their insurance, even people who like their current plans. And then three different versions of uh, rebuttal to it. People heard one of them, whether it talks about a, a gradual transition, whether pe- it's about people would still be able to keep their private insurance instead of joining Medicare if they want, or one that focuses on the portability. And again, we didn't really see much of a difference, no matter which version of that rebuttal people heard. And I guess that there's a couple of things that I want to note about this. One is, you know, there's this conversation about the details, which is what lawmakers do, but voters respond to Medicare for all in similar ways, regardless of what, you know, the details of the conversation that are being had, that the support for it with a name and even with a little bit more explanation, but even before they hear that explanation, support is pretty robust. Um, and the second thing is, how do we talk about Medicare for all in polling more broadly, right? So this this poll shows support for it, and as I mentioned, in a variety of askings. But other polling shows, you know, different results. But how do those polls ask about it? So there was one poll that's gotten a lot of coverage, and this is Kaiser and Cook partnership and kind of a blue, they call it blue wall voices. And so I think it's just a few states. Um, and they have a question that this made the rounds that a majority said Medicare for all is a bad idea. But here's how they phrase it. A national Medicare for all plan that would eliminate private health insurance. That's the plan. That's how they describe it. So they describe it in a totally different way, you know, without it really providing any sort of benefit. It's, you know, the main thing you know about it is it eliminates private health insurance. And so in that formulation, it's a bad idea. If people say it's a bad idea. Um, in the Des Moines Register, Iowa poll, they asked a question among Democratic caucus goers, and this got a little coverage, like which of these, you know, different approaches do you support? And the way they describe Medicare for all is that create a Medicare for all plan that eliminates private health insurance and covers everyone through a government run program similar to Medicare. So I'm not saying that this is not complicated or tricky or that more conversations about it will won't change voters' views because obviously healthcare is like, you know, an immense topic with a variety of policy details and personal experiences that people bring to the table. So, you know, it requires a variety of different pollsters and polls asking about it in different ways. But I think we should be mindful when we see questions that say, everyone says X, to take a look at what the question wording says. And sometimes because we're talking about a plan that means different things to different people, that we should be mindful of how we describe it. And you know, a simple description that has really no added information tells us something and and a question that adds more information tells us something else. We should just be mindful of what we're looking at. Yeah, there's in the the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, another way they they ask about it, which I think is, is probably better than the Medicare for all plan that would eliminate private health insurance, because that's kind of it's it's including in it, the one of the big things Republicans say is bad about it, it's including it right there in the question. So right, without anything on the other, you know, any other benefit um, of it. But I, I do think that the implementing a national Medicare for all plan in which all Americans would get their insurance from a single government plan is closer to a more balanced way of framing it. Because one thing that I noticed that isn't present in 
the study that you were talking about first is the word government at all, not in the, the pro messages or in the, the con messages. And that's certainly something that Republicans will always use. And even if you are trying to do a neutral description of Medicare for all, you know, if you're saying that it would guarantee coverage to everyone from any doctor and hospital anywhere in the U.S. with no premiums, you still have to say who's providing it. And the government is providing it is still kind of a neutral, you know, you're not saying the big socialized, big government is providing it or what have you. But um, I still think that's an important word that I look for when I'm assessing, okay, how much, how much information is this question giving? Is it giving people the right information? Um, that the thing about, oh, it's going to eliminate your private insurance, that to me feels messagey, but including the fact that the coverage would be coming from the government, to me doesn't feel messagey so much as a, a, just a, a fact of if the coverage isn't coming from private insurance, where it would be coming from. Um, so that's just my own personal preference when I'm looking at things. I think that the, the other Kaiser way of asking it is pretty interesting. Single government plan, uh, I, I might quibble with that a little bit, but the fact that it uses the G word um, I, I do think that's important, even when asking a, a version of this question that is not messagey. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I think there's a lot of different ways to ask it. And I think what none of these other questions have is like, what's the benefit of doing it, you know? And if it, a question that has none of that, like our kind of initial asking has no other information, it tells you where people begin. And you know, people begin in a place where they don't really actually move that much from. And so what we found was, you know, sometimes people have poll results and they're like, we tested a bunch of things and the movement is X. We tested a variety of different ways of asking it and there was not that much movement, which to me, mm -hmm. you know, shows that, you know, there's something about the word Medicare, the phrase Medicare for all that people are responding to before they even are introduced any other information, government or otherwise. And then there was another thing that I think that folks might have also seen, which is a regression analysis done of Democratic candidates who supported Medicare for all. So this was released, I think this was Crystal Ball. And they looked at, they included in the model, um, you know, a candidate's position on Medicare for all, and then some information about the district, like what the Democrat, this is all for house races, Democratic presidential margin, spending, et cetera. So you just got like a little bit about the climate of a district and a candidate's Medicare for all position, Democratic candidate's Medicare for all position, and found that it had a, it was a negative predictor. There was a negative correlation between a Democratic candidate's position on Medicare for all and whether or not they won, holding into account a bit about the climate fundraising performance. and. That made the rounds and I think is an interesting approach, yet it doesn't take into account any other issue in this model from what I can tell. There's no other candidate position or even how much time or resources were spent communicating one's position on Medicare for all. It's, you know, so there may be districts where a candidate spent a lot of time talking about it or districts where a candidate spent no time talking about it. You know, that's not reflected in here. And so that to me is interesting. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I have the answer on what Medicare for all means for a Democratic candidate because that's not what we tested. But I just think that there's, you know, there's so much out there currently that is showing a variety of different that's trying to grapple with this. And I think we mm -hmm. need to be mindful of whether we are trying to ascribe some specificity and precision to how voters are viewing the Medicare for all debate that they may not have. 
Well, this is our last episode before Thanksgiving. Next week, we're taking off. So let's dig into uh, what are people thinking about Thanksgiving weekend shopping? National Retail Foundation, always a purveyor of interesting data on this front, um, say that they expect of more than 165 million people will shop over the Thanksgiving weekend. They say younger consumers are more likely to shop over the Thanksgiving weekend. Um, that among those 18 to 24, 88% say they are likely to shop and particularly enjoy the social aspect. So does that mean they're going to be like the kids are going back to the malls? That is a that's a big finding. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess shopping is an activity. I mean, what we're not seeing in here is, is there a backlash against shopping on Black Friday or shopping on Thanksgiving? You know, there's been like a movement. Is it something that we should be not like rewarding companies for having their employees work, you know, crazy hours over the holiday. Um, you know, I have to say, I did look to see if there was a change in kind of the five day weekend piece of it. Does that change over the last couple of years where people are kind of spreading out their shopping over the weekend, but it's been the same over the last few years. Um, and then there was this, which I found particularly fun was a poll for Instacart about the food that people ate, where about a fifth say they pretended to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner, um, or I guess pretend to hosting it. And then 17% who said that they have hosted it have said that they have regretted offering to host, which I thought was pretty funny. I would love to do follow up in like IDIs with the people who regret it. Like, did you regret it because people showed up and drank too much? Did you regret it because it all of a sudden you had the pressure to do the cooking and you couldn't just enjoy yourself. Was it, did you have, did you have to invite someone you didn't want to invite? Like what was the the reason? Um, I am very excited because we're hosting Thanksgiving at our house and last year we did as well. And my sister came to visit and she gave my husband's Turkey such rave reviews that word spread throughout the family. So this was, we're, we're a pretty hot ticket this year, Margie. I got to tell you. So house what Anderson's was this Turkey? So what was his secret? Did he brine it? Did he? Yes. So he, he batch cocks it. So uh-huh. it like, you yes. know, then takes out the spine. This is all very gross sounding, but I do have to remind myself the turkey is already dead. Yes. Um, and then puts a bunch of salt on it and lets it like dry brine in the fridge overnight so that it makes like the skin really crispy. And then it also cooks very fast because the turkey itself is not still a big round ball. It's kind of flattened out, you know, splayed out accordingly. And that apparently just really, really worked well last year. So I think the other problem, though, I my issue is you're therefore not cooking the stuffing inside the turkey. Um, but he, he gets around it. His stuffing is still excellent. Like there's some use of the broth. I think they make some, he makes some kind of broth that's fine. I don't know. He's a wizard at this and it's really good. So I'm I am very excited. Plus, we're gonna celebrate Wally's gotcha day slash faux birthday. We're gonna <laughs> I, make him like a doggo birthday cake out <laughs> of turkey or something. Turkey dog on turkey day. It's been one year since we got him, so we'll we'll celebrate a dog birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Wally I just is watched like... the episode of The Crown where uh the ab- abdicated, you know, David, former King Edward. Yes. And uh, yes. Wallace Simpson are having a birthday party for their pug. But then later in the episode, you find out that they were secret Nazis. So not a great example. 
Yes. Not, not setting the stage very well for those of us who might want to throw a dog birthday party. But I haven't watched The Crown since very early on, but I remember, you know, the queen kind of early on saying that she wished that she had was like trained and had more schooling because all she could talk about for dogs and horses, <laughs> which for some reason I found a funny line, but that's my that, That's definitely in, in one of the earlier episodes. Yes. Yeah. Where, I have not really and, watched it since that was a highlight, not a high point for me. Um, so this week, what did we learn? Pollsters for all. That's something that we can all get behind. We hope that you're having a multi-party system this week in Thanksgiving where you may or may not want to test out big structural changes in your dinner plans, depending on how the polls look. Um, but have a great week and holiday, restful, no political fights with your family. And we'll see you the week after. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at Margie O'Mero and at K Soltis Anderson, or on Facebook and at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.